Welcome to the How to Survive a Horror Movie Podcast, where we learn how to survive horror movies and maybe how to survive life. My name is Ryan Stacy. The point of this podcast is we're going to be taking a look at various horror movies and breaking down the various decisions that are made by the characters in them to try and make a definitive list on how to survive a horror movie. As I said, my name is Ryan Stacy. I'm a big horror movie fan. I've been watching them since middle school obsessively, uh, wasting much of my life on it. And I've always wanted like some sort of master list on how to survive a horror movie. And, you know, there's some small ones out there. And this whole podcast came about from a book that I wanted to write. But I decided a book would be hard because more and more horror movies come out every year. And so it would just be tough to keep up with all the new things that are coming out in horror. So I figured a, a podcast that we could expand upon and that could continue to grow would be a, a better medium for this project. So today's the first episode. And we are doing the movie Halloween. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled one good scare. Huh? 1978, John Carpenter. Just, just an utter classic. Figured this is a good movie to kick things off with. It's one of the one of the oldest slasher movies out there. Not the original, but you know, one of the one of the Godfathers. Just a heads up, because we're going to be breaking down all of the character decisions that are made in this movie. Obviously, there will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie Halloween, I don't know what you're doing here, but go watch it. And then come back and listen to this. So what we're going to be doing here is... Well, I'm going to introduce my guest in just a moment. I won't be doing this alone. But what we'll be doing is breaking down the plot a little bit. Talking about our general feelings of the movie just a little bit. This is not a review podcast. And then we'll go down into each beat in the story, in the plot. And talk about the decisions the characters made. Whether they were good, whether they were bad. And we'll come up with some rules along the way. And at the very end, we'll, we'll add them. We'll make them the first rules in our How to Survive a Horror Movie Master List. And then we'll give out a couple of awards at the end for who followed the, the rules the best and who did the worst. And that should about do it for me. Let's go ahead and introduce the guest I have tonight. A uh, very prestigious guest. This is my good friend, Derek. How's it going, Ryan? Good to be here. Thanks for having me as the first guest. Uh, I'm glad you could do it. I tried to get many other people. They all shot me down. So I was the best you could do. Yes, unfortunately. And it's perfect because I have a face for podcasts. <laughs> As do I, as do I. So Derek, why don't you go ahead and start off with, uh, what is your background with the horror genre? To be honest, I have almost zero experience with the horror community. I don't read about them online. I don't watch them. I'm one of those members of the community at large who enjoys films, but I just don't venture down the spooky boulevard. Nightmare on Elm Street? I ain't going down Elm Street. That's just how it goes. (laughs) So... I have obviously a negative bias, more of a negative bias coming into this podcast. But that being said, I want to stay on track. I want to be open-minded. I want to be unbiased for the listeners, but maybe just offer that perspective that isn't biased by 12 years of loving horror movies. So hopefully I can bring that. And that's exactly right, Derek. The reason why I have Derek here is because I think most horror movie enthusiasts like myself kind of look at Halloween and some of these other classic movies through rose-tinted glasses. We can ignore the faults a little bit just because we love the movie so much and we have nostalgia for it. Uh, The opinion of someone like Derek, who's never seen this movie before tonight, doesn't particularly care for most horror films. You like a few. Sure. So he's not like a hater by any means. He'll be much more willing to state the hard truth that we may not want to hear. 
So in the future, I definitely will have horror fans on the podcast, but I think it is interesting to get non-fans like Derek on board to give their opinions. That way we get a wider variety of perspectives, which I find interesting. I hope you do too. So Derek, what were your general thoughts on Halloween real quick? Oh boy. Well, Ryan, I got to say, the movie kind of reminded me of a toilet bowl flusher. Uh, First, it's sort of meh, and then it goes down, and then it kind of works its way back up a little bit, and then it goes down again with poor character decisions and... This is certainly not an emulation of reality. And I understand that the point of movies is to suspend that reality. But I think me and many people like me will agree that a reason we don't like to watch these movies is we cannot relate to these characters because these things happen. And we'd like to believe, we obviously don't know, but we'd like to believe that we have more sense when things like this happen. And we would have enough sense to either get out, survive, fight do these different things that these characters don't do. So while I recognize that there is that suspense of reality, I give the movie a 5 out of 10 because of because of the poor character decisions and the general frustration I get from watching it. That being said, it makes me feel something, but eager to hear your thoughts, <laughs> eager to hear what, what you think of the movie, Mr. Rose-Tinted Glasses. Yes, yes, it's true. I, I, I do think this movie is slightly overrated, but I still think it is a really good movie. I'd give it an 8 out of 10 personally. Yes, I, I, I will agree there's a lot of poor character decisions, but I think I think you might be being a little too harsh. That remains to be seen. But I, I really like the movie. Uh, my dad always told me how, how scary it was growing up. He, he had nightmares for like a month after he watched it. Uh, I watched it when I was in middle school. I guess I didn't find it that scary, but I still really liked it. But yeah, I have a lot of fondness for this movie, but I do think it's a little bit overrated. Hopefully our uh, negative-ish feedback didn't scare everybody away here. <laughs> uh, but I think that's good enough. We can start getting into this plot unless you got anything else before we get started, Derek. If this is interesting enough to not cut, my wife actually has an experience with this movie too. This, oh, really? is, this is one of the few slasher movies that my wife, who I'm, I'm not a horror person, she is anti-horror. Yeah. She will not watch these types of movies, and this movie is the reason why. What happened to her? She was on an explorer's trip. It's kind of like uh, paramedics or cops in training program for youth, so if you want to get your feet wet on that stuff, you you join these these groups. They were on a trip to Texas, and they were watching this in their mobile home, and they're driving down the road, and they're watching it, and my wife is already on edge. And then her troop leader who was supposed to be sleeping and napping, waited for one of the most suspenseful parts of the film and reaches out and grabs her ankle. And she screamed (laughs) what I have heard described as bloody murder and through punches. (laughs) So she refuses to watch this movie again and any movie that has that slasher feel to it. So that's my only exposure to this movie beforehand uh, is hearing that story, which of course makes me laugh. (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty good. I didn't know that story. That's a good one. I guess we can get started on the plot then. Uh, we start with some opening credits, and we see a pumpkin, and we just get closer and closer on the pumpkin. Before we get to Haddonfield, Illinois, 1963, and we start off outside of the home of the Myers family. Uh, we have a point-of-view shot of someone watching Judith Myers and her boyfriend making out on the couch before they go upstairs. The unseen figure enters the house, takes a knife from the kitchen drawer, And after what was probably the fastest sex ever, the boyfriend leaves the house. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly. And the person goes upstairs to Judith Myers' room, where he puts on a clown mask before stabbing Judith Myers to death. And then the unseen figure goes back outside, 
where the parents of Judas Myers return home, and it is revealed the killer is Judas' little brother, Michael Myers, and he's just a little, like, eight-year-old kid. And that is how we open Halloween. So, I actually am a big fan of this scene. It really captivated me. It certainly has aged. You can tell the movie was made in 78. But I really love the point of view shot. I really love that it's from the point of view of a child. You can kind of tell because he has to peek up into the window. I really enjoyed walking up the stairs. It built the suspense really well. And honestly, it wasn't it wasn't scary. It it was suspenseful and I enjoyed it. That's fair. I think that's very fair. Glad you like that that scene, Derek. That's a classic opener. Has aged a little bit, but it's still just a classic. But this brings us to the very first rule of the How to Survive a Horror Movie podcast. Number one most important rule on the board. The number one rule to survive a horror movie is to know that you are in a horror movie. Meta. Meta. To be fair, this can work on two levels. This can be the meta level, like you're Randy from Scream who knows literally the rules to survive a horror movie. Don't you know the rules? What rules? You don't... Jesus Christ, you don't know the rules? Have an aneurysm, why don't you? There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. That kind of thing. Like, oh, this is like a horror movie situation. Like a line of dialogue like that. But there's other ways this can be too. There's other ways. Like this would be the more real life kind of way where you notice something is off. Something isn't right. Something is weird. And it's just enough to put you on guard. Like, huh, this is kind of an odd situation. For example, if you're driving in like an RV, you're going to go stay in a cabin in the woods with some friends. And you stop at this gas station and an old guy is like, oh, you got to stay away from there because it's cursed. You stay away. You don't necessarily need to stay away because he could just be uh, trying to scare tourists off. Sure. But it's just enough to put you on your guard. It's like, huh, that was kind of weird. You know, maybe I shouldn't do drugs to impair my cognitive abilities at this time. <laughs> just, it's just, just something to put you on your guard. That's never happened in a horror movie, has it, Ryan? <laughs> Where they did drugs or had sex and it took them yeah. off of being on guard? So the, the, the doing drugs, the drinking, the having sex part, that, that isn't going to be a rule here because that's not, that's not what gets you killed. It's, it's just not realizing you're in a horror movie and then doing something stupid like that when you're in a potentially dangerous situation. So getting back, I suppose, to the opening sequence of Halloween, uh, the first kill I say here that Judith Myers has no chance. I don't think she broke any rules. I don't think that there's anything she could have done differently. I think you're pretty close. I think there's one thing she could have done, and that is the realization she's in a horror movie because there's one very critical factor here that she overlooked, and that is the fact that it is Halloween. The day itself. That is a day full of spooks. The creeps come out at night. There's lots of people wandering around in masks. Perfect time for some weirdo to be walking around. Yeah, like your little brother. Could be your little brother. That's that's the key here. That's the key here. In general, for this throughout this entire movie, most of the movie takes place on Halloween itself. I think that's a day where you need to be on your guard because there's weirdos out there, people. Lots of weirdos. And this is where I'm going to try and rip those rose-colored glasses right off your head and say this is a group of people who are in their own reality. To them, it's like Halloween to most of us. There's not a whole lot of weirdness amiss, and especially if you're an adult or you're an older teenager, you're not expecting these sorts of things to happen. So while I understand, I would also counter with the fact that you've told me this is one of the first slasher movies. There is no reason for anyone to believe that they are in a horror movie because they would not have seen one like this. That's fair. That is fair. But I will also say 
when I say be on your guard on Halloween, it doesn't necessarily mean your life is in danger. It could also mean you could fall victim to a hilarious prank that is not hilarious to you. It's just a day where the weirdos come out, and it's just smart to be on your guard and be more aware on this day. So, for example, lock your doors on your house. I know it's the 1960s, but again, lock your doors on your house. So that your little brother can't get back in. And all of this is moot, because... My points are valid. The killer here was Michael Myers, and Judith had no reason to suspect her little brother was about to stab her to death. So I, I think you're generally right, Derek. There's not much Judith could have done here except just be a little bit more aware on Halloween, which is a smart move to do. But that's, that's all I got for Judith. Fair enough. I can, I can concede the point a little bit, but I still say that she, she didn't break any rules. She had no reason to believe she was yet in a horror movie. Okay. That's 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 fair enough. It, it's 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 a it's a little 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 smidge of a violation, I think, but not much. Okay, moving on. Cut to 1978, Smiths Grove, Illinois, where we meet Doctor Loomis, played by the great Donald Pleasance, and Marion Crane, the nurse. Doctor Loomis and Marion Crane, they're they're on their way to Smith Grove, uh, Smith Grove Sanitarium to pick up Michael Myers. This is 16 years later. Uh, they're going to bring him to courthouse basically to stand trial maybe or not stand trial but like taken in front of a judge they're just trying to figure out if they need to move him to a new facility stuff like that higher security lower security yep yep that's the law they're carrying it out uh dr loomis isn't very okay with it but it's the it's his job it's the law so he's gonna go do it because michael was his patient uh and he thinks michael should be locked away forever because he hasn't spoken a word in years he's got devil's eyes as he says just lock him up, throw away the key, according to Dr. Loomis. So they're driving along, yada yada, and then they get to the Smith's Grove, and they see all the patients have broken out. Now, here we go. Rule number one for Dr. Loomis and Marion Crane. They are in a horror movie, and they have no excuses at this point. There's inmates of the asylum running loose. And what do they do? They drive right up to the gate. One of them gets out, and the other one is off their guard. Now, this is where a real person calls the police now granted no cell phones at the time got to remember the technology they are they're limited you turn around and you leave you go get someone who is qualified more capable and capable to clean this mess up because this is certainly not your job and things can only go wrong and this is not just in a horror movie this is in reality you you have people who are committed to a psychiatric ward wandering around in the middle of the night in a storm in a storm there is absolutely no excuse to do anything more than that. That is not your job as Dr. Loomis. That is not your job as the nurse. That is the job for a trained professional or a team of trained professionals. So this is a poor decision. This is a poor decision. They they end up driving to the, the main gate, and Dr. Loomis gets out of the car, which is not a good call, and he goes to, I don't know, open the gate or call ahead or something. I couldn't really – you don't really get a close-up of what he's doing. He might be trying to call up to the sanitarium and figure out what's going on. I don't really know what he's doing there. But more importantly is Marion Crane stays in the car, which is good. That's the better of the two options. And then Michael Myers himself jumps on the car and starts trying to get in, breaking the windows and such. And Marion climbs out of the car. I have issues with this. Don't get out of the car. I think that in that situation, if I'm trying to put myself in someone else's shoes, I might get out of the car. It might be the wrong decision in real life. It might be the wrong decision in the movie. However, I would point out she survived. She did survive. That's true. So even if she broke a rule, she survived. So for her situation, she made the right decision to make it one day further. 
I think she made the wrong decision but didn't suffer for it. See, I think you need to stay in your shelter for as long as possible. And she she had a few more options for j- jumping out of the, the car. Had Michael been intending to kill her, she would have died. Michael just wanted the car, so she's very fortunate. Had Michael wanted to kill her, she'd be dead. Right. He wanted to leave. Yep. And once she was out of the car, that made it that much easier. But I will say, she did try to gun the car. It went True. forward into the ditch and was stuck. It was probably muddy. It was raining. Sure. So if you're tr- if someone's attempting to strangle you and you feel trapped, sometimes you just got to get out. You got to get away from the situation. So I, I don't necessarily think she made a right or wrong decision. I'll, I'll amend my previous statement. Not a right or wrong decision. She survived, so I cannot judge her too harshly for what happened. I'll judge her a little bit. <laughs> uh, Michael drives away in the car. And so we cut to the next day, Halloween now, uh, back in Haddonfield, where we go to the house of the Strodes. Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, is told to drop off a set of keys at the old Myers house by her father, leave them under the mat because he's showing them uh, somebody the house later. He, he runs a real estate company. On the way, Laurie runs into Tommy Doyle, little little boy who she's going to be babysitting that night. And they go to the Myers house, and Laurie drops the keys off, yada, yada. Oh, wait, Michael's in the house watching her and as Lori walks away from the house michael stands on the street for a very long period of time just staring at her walking away so well i don't think there have been any rules broken here yet i will say i feel like myself and many people are generally aware if they're being looked at there's this general awareness where you're not just walking forward and not looking back but i'll, I'll give a pass for this one her dad sells homes. She probably deals with abandoned homes all the time. This one's no different. It's no scarier. I don't fault any sort of decision-making here. Um, I think all of this is out of the control of, of the characters. Fair enough. I, I completely agree. So we go back to Smith's Grove, uh, where nobody's listening to Dr. Loomis. He's making some fair points. He, he, he's calling for more roadblocks, trying to call ahead to Haddonfield, but the, the people in charge at the sanitarium are not listening to him. So I don't think we can put anything of the the lack of response from the proper authorities on Dr. Loomis. This is not his fault. He tried. I absolutely agree. I think there were a couple things at play here. One, the people at the sanitarium were trying to pass the buck off onto him. Certainly weren't taking any responsibility for what happened. I I agree. I don't think that Dr. Loomis could have done much else in this scene. Sure. Uh, So we cut back to Lori, who's in class, when they're having a discussion about fate being a personification, kind of, like a natural element. Uh, very foreboding stuff, but most importantly, Michael is outside staring in, watching her. And here is where I think we have rule number one for Lori. There's some creep outside staring into her classroom, just watching her. It, it, it's not a ton, but I think it's just enough to put your guard up. Plus the fact that it's Halloween, it's just like, eh, this is a little icky. Again, I'm going to keep saying that it being Halloween has absolutely nothing to do with the creepiness factor here. If you're a teenager talking about this with your friends, you're going to say, ooh, Halloween, but seriously, this is pretty messed up, but ooh, Halloween also. I actually want to make a different observation here in this scene, if you don't mind. This showed me that Lori was intelligent. She was not paying attention to what the teacher was saying. She was not paying attention to the lesson. She was staring out the window, and she saw, again, this creep staring in at her, and the teacher surprised her with this question. Can you explain the difference in this uh, definition of fate to me? And she was able to define it very eloquently, very articulate. 
and that showed to me that there was competence for this character. It actually led me to believe that she would be making really good decisions later on in the movie, knowing that I would be doing this podcast afterwards. <laughs> I was I was watching the movie through a lens. I, I can't help it, but I certainly saw competence there. Sure. Uh, so then we cut to Tommy Doyle, who's getting out of school. He's being bullied by some kids who are teasing him about the boogeyman coming to get him, and they burst his pumpkin. Assholes. But the bullies leave. One of them runs into Michael, who begins following Tommy. Tommy's walking along, and Michael's following him. Michael gets in his car and, and drives past Tommy. But Tommy doesn't notice this, but I'm not going to hold anything against Tommy for this. When the car is driving really slow up next to him, I mean, even, I know it's the 70s. You're still teaching your kids stranger danger. But Michael doesn't linger too long, and yeah. honestly, I wouldn't think much of it if I was Tommy, even if I had noticed the car. Especially because his pumpkin just got broken. But they also tried to spook him with the boogeyman, so he should know that the boogeyman is, is <laughs> afoot. Uh, so we go back to Dr. Loomis. He's at a payphone, kind of in the middle of nowhere, and he's calling ahead, trying to get somebody to listen to him about the threat that Michael poses to Haddonfield. Nobody listens to him again. Uh, and he spots a, an abandoned truck on the side of a road. He sees uh, Michael's hospital gown abandoned there, as well as a book of matches that was in his car. He does not notice the body of the truck driver who's, that's nearby. Michael took the, the trucker's like, uniform or their coveralls or whatever those are called. Blue coverall things that Michael's yeah. wearing now. Dr. Loomis does not notice the body, but he knows it was Michael. Something happened. So he gets on the road and keeps moving. And I'd like to take this opportunity to speak to Michael's second victim. I, again, think that there were absolutely no rules broken here. This is the first time that adult Michael has killed, or at least that we know of. This mechanic was in the wrong place at the wrong time, had no reason to know, no reason to suspect anything, and we didn't get to see it, so obviously we can't judge, yeah. judge him for what happened. There's nothing we can say here. We just we found the body. We saw nothing of what he was up to. Who knows? And this is a good time for an observation. Oftentimes, I believe in movies like this, the first casualty, not a whole lot you could have done, not many ways you could have avoided your fate. Yep. <laughs> Because you didn't know you were in a horror movie, there was nothing strange amiss. Yeah, that's definitely common, uh, and I think is definitely the case here, as far as we can tell. Okay, moving on. Lori leaves school, and we meet for her for the first time her friend Linda, the cheerleader. And then as they're leaving, their friend Annie Brackett catches up with them. And we're, they're talking, Annie's got a boyfriend, Paul, who's been grounded and can't go out for Halloween. Oh, and Annie is also a, also a babysitter who's going to be uh, babysitting a girl named Lindsay Wallace, basically across the street from where Lori's going to be. So Michael drives by, and Annie shouts as like Michael's driving by, and like they're staring them down, and Annie yells, "Speed kills!" or something like that. And Michael stops his car and just like menacingly just waits there for a little bit, and then keeps going. Not a whole lot to say about this part, in my opinion. Again. It does introduce you to the type of characters we have, though. Yep. Annie is going to be probably the the more fearless one in the group, maybe the one who believes that everyone else is superstitious, certainly the skeptic in, in the group, should there be any sort of trust that it goes into the rest of the movie. Again, I watched this through a certain lens. So Annie's going to let Linda and her boyfriend Bob come over and fool around while she's babysitting, and then Linda leaves to go home. So Annie and Lori keep going. And Lori sees Michael hiding behind a hedge further ahead. And he steps out of sight before Lori can tell Annie. Annie looks up, sees nothing. Lori's like, there's someone behind the bushes. And Annie charges ahead like, hey, creep. And there's nobody there. What do you think of this? This is one of my least favorite decisions made by Lori in the movie. 
she is supposed to be smarter than this. We just saw how intelligent she is. You see a creepy man in a mask, not saying anything, hiding behind a hedge, and he disappears. You call the cops. You let someone know that something is going on in this neighborhood. You certainly don't walk up by the bushes. Annie makes a critical error here. She doesn't pay for it, but she went alone. She was not aware. She didn't trust her friend that there was this odd figure lingering behind the bushes. This is just a slew of bad choices. There are many things you could do. You could walk the other way. You could cross the street and take a wider angle to see around that hedge. There are many things you could do. I I hate this. And what makes it worse, we don't know this quite yet. Annie's father is the sheriff. There is no way she hasn't been trained on stranger danger, odd figures, suspicious activity and she is ignoring all of it she has no excuses to be behaving like this all i can figure is she thinks she's invincible because her father's the sheriff that's all i can think maybe and teenagers are not all that intelligent when it comes to this sort of thing it's true there are teenagers listening be you'll smart. Under, you'll, you'll understand what i mean in 10 years <laughs> uh, i think we can safely say this is the point that laurie is in a horror movie she should know it by now Yes, certainly something strange is afoot. Yes, she, she, she knows something weird is going on. And you can make an argument that Annie should know by now, too. She doesn't actually see Michael, but you think she'd trust her friend a little bit more? I don't know. There's definitely an argument for Annie to know she's in a horror movie here. I, I wouldn't say definitive proof, but there's a case. Absolutely. Uh, but Lori has no more excuses. And then Annie leaves. Lori actually bumps into Annie's father, the sheriff. We meet him very briefly. And then Lori... Gets home, she sees some kids out trick-or-treating. Very early to start trick-or-treating. Immediately after school, I always waited until, like, evening. I don't know about you. No, sorry. I Parents take their kids out pretty early all the time. They want to get back in before it gets dark. So I, I didn't find this too weird. What I did find weird was the words that Lori spoke to herself. Something like, well, I didn't think that you were suspicious, kid. Well, kiddo, I didn't think you were still superstitious or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Kind of a weird moment. She talks to herself, Lori. Okay, so we go up to Lori's room, and she looks out her window and sees Michael is in her yard. But maybe not, because Lori does not look away. She keeps her eyes in the backyard, and then Michael's suddenly not there. So, potentially just uh, her imagination. I think that this is a movie made in 1978, and Michael was actually there, and they just didn't show it as perfectly as they could have. I I believe that you could be right. I'm not going to linger on the point too much, but... Again, if something was bothering her this much, if she was this mentally unstable and she was seeing things, call someone. Don't do anything ridiculous tonight. You've already got this feeling. Trust your gut. Trust Trust your your gut. gut. Take it as a sign. And that's the main point of this scene, I think, is we see she's kind of freaked out. She's telling herself to calm down. you got to trust your instincts. And her instincts were dead on. Something is weird. Something is wrong. And she does not trust her instincts here. And we'll almost pay for it. Also in the scene, uh, the phone rings. Nobody's there. Phone rings again. It's Annie. No big deal. Nothing nothing of note, but Annie's going to come pick up Lori. Cut to Annie picks up Lori, and they smoke some weed, um, which is, it's, this is a big deal, because uh, one of the rules from horror movies is don't do drugs. And we have Lori smoking weed. We have Annie smoking weed and driving, and her father's the sheriff, too. Yes, but, I mean, Annie dies. But what's going on in the scene, if you're the audience member... You don't care about what they're talking about. You don't care about what they're smoking. You don't even really care where they're going. You're too busy watching the asylum vehicle following them. Yep. Which 
I think is a good time to maybe, and you can and you can override this if you want, but I'd like to try and introduce a rule here. This is a great point to introduce what I think should be rule number two. It goes hand in hand with knowing you're in a horror movie, but that is a little bit meta. This is applicable to real life. Constant vigilance. Yeah, as Matt I. Moody would say, rule number two of how to survive a horror movie is constant vigilance. And they certainly do not exercise this. I have had people follow me before while I'm driving, and I noticed. I noticed. It freaked me out. I took action immediately. I survived. Not saying that anything would have happened, but... You never know. Michael followed them for a long time on slow town roads and then pulled over after they made it to some destination and waited for them to leave again and proceeded to keep following them. Constant vigilance, constant vigilance. I can't stress this enough. Would you agree with this rule? A hundred and fifty thousand percent, I agree. If you ever notice somebody following you in your car, uh, do three or four right turns in a row, and if they're still following you, you know you have a problem. And what you should do then is, uh, obviously they didn't have cell phones at the time, but just drive to the police station. Or to the fire station. Sure. Go to somewhere where there are law enforcement or officials, somewhere public, somewhere well-lit, somewhere staffed. Yep. Get, get away. They didn't notice that a psycho was following them, and they, they had seen that car earlier, so they would know. Uh, but they were not paying attention because they were smoking the devil's lettuce. Uh, so we cut back to Dr. Loomis, who's at the graveyard with the groundskeeper, and they go to Judith Myers' grave and discover it's been dug up. One, shows that Michael's pretty strong, and two, Dr. Loomis is not surprised by this. Dr. Loomis, he knows that this is a, a bad situation, and we already know that he's tried to talk to law enforcement who hasn't listened to him, tried to talk to the sanitarium. No one listened to him. So we can't really fault a whole lot of his efforts to recruit help at yep. this point, at least in, in my opinion. Yeah, so far so good for Dr. Loomis for the most part. Annie and Lori are driving smoking weed, and they see Annie's father, the sheriff, at a hardware store where there has been a break-in. And they go and talk to him briefly, and they find out that uh, some masks, some rope, and some knives were stolen. So nothing alarming, I guess. Except for the masks, the knives, and the rope. Yeah. The sheriff just thinks it's some kids. Could have been, but we know it wasn't. It was, it was, it was Michael. Why did Michael steal knives? What did he do with the rest of them? You know, that's a good question. I think we only see him carrying one the whole time. Yeah. Hmm. Good question. Don't know. And then they leave, and Dr. Oh, and Michael continues to follow them. And then Dr. Loomis shows up and wants to talk to the sheriff. And nearly sees the car. Oh, almost. Almost. Just a little bit of bad luck. But he, he was looking around. He just happened to look the wrong way at the wrong time. And I'd actually like to say the sheriff in this scene... I was expecting him to dismiss Dr. Loomis entirely. I feel like that is maybe a, a horror movie stigma. From someone who doesn't watch horror movies, you always feel like law enforcement is incompetent and does not want to help you, and then you assume that you've got no help and you're on your own and you need to do something. So I was very pleasantly surprised when he said, hey, give me 10 minutes, i got to take care of this thing that's real that's in front of me. I will help you deal with this later. Yep. So I appreciated the sheriff for that. I agree. Okay, so Lori and Andy keep driving. They talk about this boy. Lori's got a crush on named Ben Tramer. That's who she wants to go to the dance with. And they finally arrive at the houses. Uh, Lori goes to Tommy Doyle's house. Well, Annie goes across the street to Lindsay Wallace's house, parks the car in the, or her car in their garage, and the Wallaces leave. But Michael is watching all of this happen. Uh, then Dr. Loomis and Sheriff Brackett arrive at the Myers' house. And they go inside. They search the house. 
They find a dead dog that has been partially eaten. Dr. Loomis suspects Michael. The sheriff probably also does, but doesn't want that to be true. He tries to say maybe it was a skunk or something. They go through the house. They have a jump scare that reveals Dr. Loomis has a gun. And so he decides to stay, and he tells the sheriff to get word to the cops, but says, don't tell the media, it'll start a panic. So the sheriff leaves. What do you think about all of this, Derek? Again, this is stupid. This is a stupid decision. If you're going into a house that could have the most psychotic killer that Dr. Loomis is making Michael Myers out to be, you don't go in at night, in close quarters, weapons not drawn, certainly, and look around. And I actually think that the sheriff was a little irresponsible here because you see a dog that's been killed and partially eaten. I don't care what Dr. Loomis says to me. Do your damn job. You're calling in backup. They are driving around. They are looking. There is absolutely no excuse for the sheriff's behavior here. They don't pay for any mistakes of going into a house, shutting the door. The lights don't work because it's an old house. That's fine. Poor decision after poor decision in this scene, in my opinion. I don't mind the fact that they went into the house so much because that is doing their job. It's just the response wasn't great on the sheriff's part. This is the part where I will say this is rule number one for Sheriff Brackett. He should know he's in a horror movie. He is. He knows there's a potential psychotic lunatic killer on the loose. And I found a partially eaten dog. That's enough for me. He should know he's in a horror movie. Yeah, you even used the word potential in there. No, you know that there's something psychotic going on. At yeah. the very least, there's something eating a dog. Yes. Whatever it is, it's I mean, it, it's, it shouldn't be here. At the very least, call animal control. <laughs> if it was a skunk. <laughs> uh, it's not good. He doesn't completely dismiss the doctor, and it, it's not the worst response I've ever seen, but it's not great. Right. He, you know, he, he's doing something. Uh, they agree to split up. The doctor is going to watch the house, and the sheriff is just going to go do bumfuck something else. Go, he's going to go talk to his men. Sure. Yeah. I, not great. Not going to kill him too much for it, because they got to get the info out. But, yeah, it definitely could have been handled better. Mediocre execution on the sheriff's part, I think. Doctor's plan to stay at the house is fine. Because that's his best lead. And he's doing his job. He's trying to track Michael down. So Obviously, a rash person would not be in this town. But he's doing his job, so I'm not going to hold it against him because lives are on the line. Fair enough. So we cut to the, the Doyle house where Lori is reading Tommy a story. And he's asking about the boogeyman. And Annie ends up calling Lori. They're talking on the phone. Z Wallace is just watching TV. But the Wallace's dog, Lester, comes into the kitchen while Annie's on the phone and starts barking at something outside. And Annie proceeds to completely ignore this dog and just get mad at it. Uh, and yells at Lindsay to control her dog. Well, we see Michael is outside. It's almost like rule one, sub-bullet A. Listen to the animals. I feel like this is something that might come up in the future. This is certainly a stigma that I'm aware of. If you see the birds flying the other way, if you hear about how fishermen aren't catching fish, or if the dog starts barking, or the cat starts hissing, you know to me, there are no excuses anymore to not be aware of something odd going on. This is where Annie has zero excuses going forward. She had a little leeway before. It is all gone now. Yep, Annie should know she's in a horror movie at this point. You have to listen to the animals. They have much better instincts than us. So Annie yells at the dog. The dog walks away. Tommy actually sees Michael. Michael's not really doing anything. He's just a creep standing outside in a mask. Again, it's Halloween. That's kind of par for the course of what's going on. But Tommy's already aware he's in a horror movie. You know, he doesn't respond super well to it, but he's definitely scared. So i got to give a little credit to Tommy here. He's not perfect later on, but he, he knows he's in a horror movie before I would expect him to be. And honestly, 
I think that Tommy is a perfectly rational character in this movie. I almost think that um, Dr. Loomis, notwithstanding, he's the most rational character because he's the little kid. He notices something weird. He might be falsely attributing it to the boogeyman, but he says, this is wrong. I'm noticing it. But what he does is he trusts in the people that he's supposed to trust, which the adults are supposed to be the sane person in the room, the sane person in the house. You're supposed to trust your babysitter. And as a kid in a movie, sometimes as an audience member, that really annoys me. But if I'm putting myself in that universe, in that moment, I say that Tommy does absolutely nothing wrong. He cried for it. He screamed about it. And he was dismissed as children would be. Yes. And, you know, Lori does the wrong thing here and ignores Tommy. But she doesn't redeem herself later on. She does save Tommy. So that's something. But we will get to that. Uh, so meanwhile, Annie spills some butter all over her shirt and pants and takes her clothes off in the middle of the kitchen for some reason. But meanwhile, outside, Michael accidentally knocks a plant over. And Annie does, she hears it and does nothing about it. Why did a plant just break outside? Eh, whatever. Annie's terrible. Was this before or after she spilled something on her shirt? It was after. Who strips down naked in front of the window, after spilling a little butter on yourself, this is just pandering to the audience at this point. Yes, to your point, Annie is the worst. The flower pot is broken. Still no excuses. To at least take a look outside. Don't You don't have to go outside, but look out your window. Again, your father is the sheriff. You're supposed to be better than this. Uh, so we cut to Michael. Uh, he's outside, and Lester, the dog, confronts him, starts barking at him. And Michael kills Lester, the dog. I'm sad. And you know what? I am going to say that Lester did nothing wrong here. Lester did nothing wrong. He's the guard dog. That's his job. Lester is a good boy. Lester. He deserves all the pets and deserved way better than Annie, who is the worst. the worst. Lester wanted to protect the family. He wanted to protect the house. And also, uh, German Shepherd didn't bite. Just tried to be intimidating. That was a well-trained dog. Let no fault of his own, the dog pays the price. This is the saddest death in the whole movie. Agreed completely. 100% saddest death. So we cut to back inside to Lori and Tommy. They're watching the movie The Thing from Another Planet, which, fun fact about this movie, this was remade in a few years later by John Carpenter, who directed Halloween, uh, starring uh, Kurt Russell. And then there was a prequel made in 2011. But yeah, they were watching the original version, and then years later, Carpenter would get to make a remake of it, which is kind of fun. Yeah, fun tidbit. I didn't know that. Um, this is why I had you on my show today, Ryan. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, then Annie goes out to the separated laundry room. It's not attached to the house to do to wash her shirt and pants. Uh, Michael is outside and could have easily killed her here, but doesn't. But Annie end up, uh, ends up getting locked in this room. The door shuts behind her because of the wind, and she calls for Lindsay for help. Annie sucks. Annie is the worst. It's hard to watch. It makes me stamp my feet. Pull my hair out. At this point, it became comedic. I'm pretty sure I laughed when she got stuck in the laundry room. You absolutely did. So, again, just reiterating, Annie's the worst, and I can't wait for her to die at this point. (laughs) Uh, Lindsay's watching the thing and not really listening. Um, The phone rings. Annie can hear it, but it's still stuck. Uh, Lindsay gets the phone, and it's Annie's boyfriend, Paul. So Lindsay goes to find Annie and finds her stuck. In the window, trying to climb out the window. Gets her out of the laundry room and back inside the house. Paul calls again, but Annie very stupidly leaves the door open here with Michael outside. Lock your doors. Like, I know people to this day who, they live in smaller towns and they don't lock their doors. No, lock your doors, people. It's, it's there for a reason. There's no excuses here. 
Okay, so Annie uh, has to go pick up Paul. So she brings Lindsay over and drops her off with Tommy and Lori so she can go pick up Paul. And Michael sees all of this. Here we have rule number three of the podcast, which is do your damn job. Do your damn jobs. Now, we, we kind of discussed this already with the sheriff and Dr. Loomis. And I'd say the doctor's done a very good job at doing his job for the most part. Sheriff, not great, but not horrible. Annie is, again, the worst. She's getting paid to be a babysitter. Uh, dropping the kids off at other places, not paying attention, being more interested in hanging out with her boyfriend. All of this, you know, she's just generally being distracted. And this is what's going to lead to her being killed. I 100% agree with you. Annie absolutely fails here in her job as a babysitter. I, I stand behind this rule. I'm glad you include it. All right. That is rule number three. Do your job. Do your damn jobs. Uh, so Annie leaves Lori in charge, who agrees to do this if Annie will cancel the date that Annie set up with Ben Tramer. That's the only reason Lori agrees to it. Annie goes back to the garage, uh, realizes her car door is locked. So she goes back to her house to get her keys. She goes back out to the garage and opens the car door and gets in without using the keys to unlock the door, but doesn't really realize it. She just opens the door and sits down. And then she notices the windows of her car fogged up, and there's like a moment where she realizes, like, huh, wait a second. My car door was unlocked. And by then, it's too late. She's grabbed from behind by Michael Myers and strangled, stabbed to death. It's a little hard to see. One thing I'll finally give Annie credit for was trying to honk the horn to get yes. people's attention. But again, making the right decision as you're dying doesn't do you a whole lot of good. Too little, too late. Too little, too late. But you... yes, good, good. We'll give Annie here like one bit of credit here. Is like at least she tried something on her way out of this uh, mortal coil. She even died on the steering wheel. There you go. Tried to warn everyone, the whole neighborhood. Nobody heard. Very no soundproof garage. <laughs> or nobody cared because they knew that Annie was the worst. Yes, exactly. So again, this, this all comes back to rule number two for Annie, constant vigilance. So let, let's just talk about Annie and her failures some more in general. She failed to realize she was in a horror movie with running into Michael, the dogs barks, just, just weird stuff like that. She's a terrible babysitter and just wasn't paying attention. Michael was following her in her car. And what was she doing with her time? Not paying attention to anything is what she was doing. And I think a lot of this was actually very intentional. I think the constant poor decision-making, that was the point. We were rooting for this character to die. At least modern audiences definitely are. I, I doubt they were at the time just because, you know, there wasn't many movies like this. There's hardly anything like this. But I think nowadays, yeah, we're rooting for Annie to die because she sucks. Fair point. So we cut back. Uh, Tommy and Lindsay are still watching the thing. Tommy scares Lindsay, but he gets distracted because he sees Michael carrying Annie into the house. And I really like that they used the soundtrack for the movie to score this this little scene where Michael's carrying Annie's body. It's really creepy. I think it might be the creepiest image in the movie, personally. Tommy, you know, again, he realizes there's something bad going on here. He tries to warn Lori. Doesn't work. Again, bad job on Lori. Good job on Tommy. But then he just kind of goes back to watch the movie. Gets distracted. And to Lori's credit here... I don't falter for this. The kid's nine, Halloween, watching a spooky movie. Yeah. This is exactly what a kid like this would say. Yeah. He turned out to be right, but I, I, can't, I can't do any demerits yeah. toward, I, I won't hold toward anything, Lori for this. I won't hold anything against Lori here for this. Uh, so we cut back. Dr. Loomis is now outside the house, which is an interesting strategy, I think. Uh, what do you think, Derek? Should he have been inside waiting for Michael or outside? I think when you're dealing with someone who kills in close combat— he does not use a gun. He uses a knife. He uses his hands. The further you can see, the better. I agree 100% with the strategy of being outside. What I don't agree with is all of our shots of Dr. Loomis is him kind of peering through a hedge. 
I think that he should have been in his car across the street because he can't see the back door anyway. Sure. So if you're going to take this vantage point, you can do better. So unless his plan was to catch Michael off guard and shoot him quickly before he goes into the house. Which could be the case. Which could be the case. I think there were better options, but I do think where he was was better than in the house. Don't let him get you somewhere in close quarters. Sure. That makes sense. I, I I can go along with that. Uh, some kids show up, and he scares them off, which is hilarious. Lonnie, get your ass away from there. Um, the sheriff returns, and the doc convinces the sheriff to stay up all night and do this thing. So good on the sheriff. He's finally starting to take this seriously. Yep, good on the sheriff. Do your job. He listens. So we cut back to the houses. Linda and her boyfriend, Bob, show up, and Bob is just the worst. Bob is disgusting and deserves to die. I hate Bob. They're drunk. Bob is driving drunk. They arrive at the Wallace house. And they go straight inside the, the pitch black house where nobody is home. It's not their house. It's, it's not Annie's house. It is the Wallace's house. Do they know who the Wallace's are? Probably. But you don't just go into a stranger's house. And so this brings me to rule number four of how to survive a horror movie. Don't be a menace. So it's just don't break any laws. Don't be a criminal. Don't drink and drive. You know, doing bad things puts you in a bad situation where A, you probably can't call the cops for help. B, you'll meet some... Not great figures like Michael Myers. So by doing this, by by going into this house where they have no business being by trespassing, they get themselves killed. I 100% agree with this rule too. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. That's one thing I do like about horror movies. Even as an outsider, bad things happen to bad people. Yes. Yeah, most of the people who die in horror movies deserve it. It's not always the case, but it's a good rule of thumb. So they go in the house, they're making out. Michael is in the house. Uh, meanwhile, Lori is hanging out with Lindsay and Tommy. She sees Bob and and Linda have arrived. The van is outside. Linda calls over and finds out Annie's not here. She's still getting Paul, I guess, or maybe he's dead somewhere, that Lindsay Wallace is over with Tommy and Lori. So Linda and Bob have the house to themselves. Uh, so they go, up, go upstairs to bang. Lori's starting to get a little worried that Annie hasn't come back yet. And Bob and Linda drink beer and, and bone. The phone rings. Bob takes it off the hook. <sighs> I'm not going to fault him too much for that because, again, you know, he's in a stranger's house. He has no idea who's on the other line. And he's trespassing. He's trespassing. He's uh, having sexy time. Eh, Whatever. Uh, Bob makes other mistakes, uh, but I won't hold that against him. Michael is in the room, and the sex is very, very, very quick. Very embarrassing for Bob. Uh, Linda is definitely lying when she says, oh, that was fantastic. Uh, Bob goes downstairs to get a beer, and he hears a weird noise. The door blows open, and he goes to investigate the strange noise. To his credit... He does not go outside the house. He's just like, oh, what was that? Walks over, and he doesn't go outside. He looks out the window, and he's checking around, thinking it's a prank. If I were him, I probably would have thought, oh, is somebody coming home or something like that? I don't know. What do you think about this, Derek? Okay decision. Not as bad as Annie. We haven't seen enough of him. But I don't think he made any poor decisions here. Maybe you become a little more suspicious. But oddly enough, let's say it's the parents of Lindsay Wallace returning home, and he hides. That puts him in a worse position than he was already in because now he's hidden and in a confined space for Michael to find him. It ends up not mattering as... Uh, Michael pops out of the closet and pins Bob up against a wall and stabs him to death. And this is not how physics works. Don't care. It's a great shot. It's a funny shot, you mean. That is a very large knife and it is stuck right through his gut and he is suspended Above the floor, six inches. Like a work of art. Dead. Again, not sure that's how quickly something would happen if you were stabbed. But, again, points for realism, zero. But 
entertaining shot. You know what? I want to actually say this. Outside of the trespassing, I want to say that Bob doesn't make any mistakes. Yeah, uh, besides don't be a menace, I, I think that's fair. Uh, he trespassed, he was drunk and driving, which isn't good, but more importantly, his, his probably his reflexes were a little bit dulled, his senses, because he was drunk, maybe. I don't even think that would have mattered. It Mike, might not have mattered. Michael popped out behind the door. He, he not so much as opened the door as it burst open and he was pinned against the wall. And we know how strong Michael is. He had no chance. Yeah. I don't think Bob really had a chance to know he was in a horror movie, really. No. Um, he had just gotten there. He went off the word of some people and trusts them, does a bad thing, does a thing that a dumb teenager would do, yeah, paid the price. So, yeah, the only violation I will give Bob is rule number four, don't be a menace. Back into the bedroom where Linda is still naked. Michael comes into the room dressed as a ghost wearing Bob's glasses. Hilarious image. Hilarious. Even I, not a fan of horror movies, thought this was really funny. And obviously, Linda thinks it's Bob, and Bob is acting weird. He's not saying anything. He's not. He's just standing there. He's just being weird. So Linda gets kind of fed up with him and decides to call Lori. She turns her back on Michael, Bob, ghost, Bob, Michael, person, <laughs> and uh, picks up the phone to call Lori. The key thing is here, uh, she turns her back on ghost, person. And best case scenario, that's Bob playing a prank, and... I don't know. If I was dating somebody and they were acting kind of weird and they were about to play a prank on me, I'm not going to turn my back on them because I know it's going to be annoying or something. But it's the worst case scenario, and it's a psycho killer who strangles her to death. Constant vigilance. Constant vigilance. But I will tack on to this. I think at this point, you're 95 out of 100 times dead. True. So, interestingly enough, we actually have this strange twist of fate where she goes to call Lori and tips her off. Again, this is like the third or fourth hint that Lori's received that something is amiss. Linda dies. She was able to give Lori another piece of the spooky puzzle. Yes. By accident, but yes. So if, if Linda dies anyway, at least she was able to create information. Yep. So with Linda's death, I don't think there's too much to suggest that she knew she was in a horror movie besides she got a brief glimpse of Michael in the car at the beginning of the movie. Uh, when he stopped as he drove, hey, yeah, speed kills, creep. Besides that, I don't think there's much to suggest for Linda that she's in a horror movie. But she failed with the constant vigilance, because don't turn your back on someone who's acting weird like that, even if it ends up being harmless. And don't be a menace. Don't break into people's houses. Yep, I would agree. Didn't break a whole lot of rules outside of don't be a menace, victim of circumstance, yeah. and some poor decision making. Yeah. Lori ends up hanging up after the weird noises. She tries to call back. There's no answer. She's staring at the house. She knows something weird is going on. Meanwhile, Dr. Loomis finally notices that just down the street, the uh, the car that was stolen from him, the government car, is parked just down the street. It took him hours to notice that this was just down the road from him. I mean, come on, Doc. Constant vigilance. Constant vigilance. Which, interestingly, that means that he was definitely paying attention to the house. But Michael could have been coming from any direction. You need to do better. Head, I, on, head on a swivel. I, I don't necessarily fault Dr. Loomis for a lot here, but he should have seen this hours ago. Yeah, he should have seen the car a while ago. That's not great. Lori grabs the keys to the house after checking on the kids and just making sure they're all right. And she decides to go over and like figure out what's going on because it's weird. It's weird that she hasn't heard from anybody. So she goes across the street, closes the door behind her, which locks. Mm -hmm. But she's got the keys, so it's fine. Keep the door locked, keep the kids safe. I, I have no problem with that. Oh, no, no, no. But so she goes over to the house, which isn't great, but she's going to make it worse. So we'll talk about this whole thing in, in just a second. But there's no answer at the front door. And she doesn't go into the house. She goes around back. So far, like, eh, it's not great moves, but 
I can live with it until she sees that the back door is opened. Something weird is going on. Again, best case scenario, they're pranking her. Don't fall for the prank. Don't be that person. Don't go in the house. Just be like, hey, I'm going to call the cops. Okay, bye, guys. And then they'll either reveal themselves like, oh, it's just a prank. Don't call the cops. Or B, you'll know something is wrong here. Point is, don't go in the creepy deserted slash abandoned house even if it's a regular house if you're not hearing from the people who are supposed to be inside don't go in and let's talk about how she makes it worse too because i think you touched on everything leading up to that just fine i have no problem with her locking the door behind her uh, you know the kids are in the house i don't have a problem with her going over to check on her friends if she felt something was awry she walks in to the dark house lights are off turns on exactly zero lights on her trip through the house. Can you please explain why if you're trying to get someone's attention and you are trying to understand what is going on, why you would hinder the sense that we most heavily rely on? Bad decision. The upstairs room, there was a light coming from there, but that might have just been a lit candle with a jack-o'-lantern. So it's possible the power was cut, but we didn't see it happen. We didn't see Lori trying any lights. I didn't see any attempts. I, I was specifically watching for her to try and turn on the lights. We've actually seen a couple characters at this point in the movie try to turn on lights, and the power had been out in other places or in other ways. Specifically, Annie in the laundry yep, laundry outhouse. Out. We know that... Light switches exist in this universe. Light switches exist, and that some other characters, who were the worst, thought to try this at times. Why does Lori, again, the intelligent one, the one that I was giving so much credit to, not turning the lights on? Yeah, that's a poor call, and it's poor to go into this house, period. Uh, that's when you uh, wait for backup. Shoot, you try those lights, and they don't turn on? This just adds to the ever-growing laundry list of reasons to leave. Yes. Get out. Get out. Go elsewhere. Be anywhere but there. Go call the cops at this point. But nope, Lori goes into the house, goes upstairs, and she finds the gravestone of Judith Myers, along with the bodies of Annie, and then Bob and Linda, which jump scare kind of thing. But first is Annie. So at this point, she's traumatized, staring at the body, and you need to look around here. Constant vigilance. I think this is my least favorite part of the whole movie, just from a decision-making standpoint. She sees three dead bodies and sinks against the wall i genuinely believe at this point fight or flight kicks in long enough for you to get out of the house i don't think that shock would settle in and you would find yourself immobile i've never been in this situation and neither have i but yeah i'd, I'd like to think i wouldn't freeze here but Lori does and she backs out of the hallway and almost straight into michael myers and Lori gets very lucky here because michael takes a slash at her and just get, grazes her arm and sleeve. So she's got a small cut on her shoulder, but not much more than that. Yeah, I've actually got a criticism here. Uh, Michael Myers. He was in the dark. It's pretty dark. It might be dark, but you got to do better, man. If you are going to kill the protagonist, you got your opportunity. You got to take it. Yep. Michael Myers failed here. Yeah, Michael could have done better here, but this does knock Lori over the side of the banister, and she falls a full story to the first floor. And injures her leg in the process. This obviously is going to hinder Lori in any movements she wants to make. But she also runs to the front door and can't get out. Yes. And you can open front doors from the inside. So unless there was some sort of weird locking mechanism or Michael nailed the door shut, 
which we should have seen if that's the case. You know, there's some filmmaking criticism. There's no reason Laurie shouldn't have been able to go out the front door. And if there was a reason, we needed to see that. But fine. She goes to the back door. She goes to the porch. And this one makes more sense. There's a rake holding it in place now. Yes, there is a rake. And she locks the door behind her. Good on her. Yep, she locks Um, the kitchen door behind her. I mean, if you can't run, you got to fortify. You got Obstacles. Obstacles. You know, buy yourself time. Yep. All this is good. Michael punches through the door, and he's trying to unlock it. Lori gets the same idea. She breaks the back window door. It's like a, a glass door. Managed to unlock it and gets out the house. Which, something that I hadn't caught, she copied exactly what Michael had done, and that's probably where she took the idea. Yes. Or at least that's what I'm going to tell myself, because I believe that writing can be really clever and symbolism is there. (laughs) Uh, So Lori runs outside. She's screaming. Good. She needs help. She goes to the neighbor's house. And she is screaming at the neighbors, banging on the door. Lights turn on. Somebody appears at the window, and they don't help her. That is the MVP, in my opinion, of the movie. My goodness, if you see someone hysterical out on your front porch throwing a fit, especially on Halloween, I will give you, on Halloween, this makes it even creepier, you don't let them in. You call the cops and say, I called the cops, they're coming, you are not going anywhere near me or my family. Go neighbors, you have followed all of the rules. Yep. Uh, the neighbors recognize they're in a horror movie by seeing this crazy woman outside. Don't know if they ended up calling the cops. We never find that out. They just turn the lights off and they do not help. This is not the time to be a hero. You have no idea if this woman is on drugs. You know, it's not the nicest thing to do, but the neighbors are alive and completely uninjured. They survived and unscathed. Completely unscathed. So, not the nicest thing to do. Good on the neighbors. If I'm Lori, though, in this situation, I think you break the window here. You know, if you break the window of the neighbor's house and, like, try and, like, get in that way, I think they're going to call the cops at that point. You know, that's something. But, yeah, I think Lori, you know, she did pretty good, but I think she could have done a little bit better by, like, breaking the neighbor's window. Like, yo, I need help. Sure. So they refuse to help, which is the smartest decision we've seen in the whole movie. And Lori goes back to the Doyle house, which I don't know about. What do you do here? Do you keep, you go back to your house or do you keep trying the neighbor's? What do you do? I think I go to other places. I know that you might be running towards something that's familiar or you might have this overwhelming urge to try and save the children. Yeah. But I don't think Michael is after the children and I don't think you have any reason to believe that he is. I think you try other neighbors' houses and I think you try every door. I don't think you waste time knocking. I know that she's hindered. I know she's battered, but you just keep going. And going back to the house puts the children in more danger. Yes. So she's in a tough spot. She is in a tough spot here. I'm not going to kill her too much for it, but I think she could have done a little bit better with her decision-making. But, again, she's injured. And she took so much time that she could have been using to get elsewhere to throw a flower pot. That was a good move. At the bedroom window. You can call it a good move because it got Tommy's attention, but now Michael knew that Tommy was in the house. I think he probably, he's been watching a lot. I think he probably knew. He probably but, knew anyway, yeah. Lori, I think this is a good move. She throws a flower pot at the window to wake Tommy up. Tommy lets Lori in the house, gets inside just in time, locks the door behind her. Oh, point of fact, um, she did bring the keys with her, but she probably lost them when she fell down the stairs, which, you know, what can you do? Yeah. So she loses the keys at some point. Not going to hold it against her. She fell down on a flight of stairs. Well, and she said, keys. It's not like we were the audience saying, you have the keys. No, she yep. said, ah, keys, where are they? What? They address. Okay. So it's fine. Lori's inside, sends Tommy back upstairs out of harm's way, 
And she, she arms herself here, which is important. So I'm going to go ahead and put this as rule number five, lock and load. And uh, Lori managed to get herself a set of knitting needles. And she she's in the middle of the room. She's looking around. She's head around a swivel. Michael somehow gets in the house and attacks her. Lori dodges the swipe and stabs him in the neck. And he collapses to the ground. And she thinks he's dead. Solid move. Yep. Solid move. Again, Michael Myers, what are you doing? You've already got four or five combined kills here in the last day, and you missed, again, head on a swivel or not, she was a pretty immobile target. Yep. No excuses, Michael. No excuses. That plot armor was thick. Very thick. But Lori does make a critical mistake here, which is brings us to rule number six. The double tap. When you have the killer down on the ground, potentially dead, stab him in the head again. And again, just be safe. Just be safe. Uh, I stole this rule from Zombieland, but I think it's the most important rule from Zombieland. Double tap. And at least, at the very least, don't take your eyes off of them. This is just my thought. Yep. Because so much happens when backs are turned. Yep. We've seen it five times in this movie already. Yep. Constant vigilance. Don't turn your back on the possibly dead killer. Because they're probably not dead. Constant vigilance. Yes. One more rule break here. We have another rule. Rule number seven. Don't leave the weapon behind. Take it with you. She leaves the knife behind for Michael to pick up again. Horrible. Horrible. You take that with you and you do not let go of that until you are safe and sound somewhere. I don't care if you're traumatized. I don't care if you're not thinking straight. Keep the weapon. Yes. Lori goes upstairs to talk to Tommy and Lindsay. He's like, oh yeah, it's all fine now. And she wants to get them out of the house. Nope. Michael comes up the stairs. And she locks them in the bedroom. And lures Michael into the master bedroom. She opens up the door to the balcony to make it seem like she went out that way. But she goes and hides in the closet. And this is just awful. This is a horrible decision. I already touched on this earlier with my statements on Dr. Loomis. You give yourself as much room as you can to see and to run. You do not corner yourself. And if you do corner yourself, you best be armed. Yes, and she's not at this point. No. She goes into the dark closet, gets into the corner of the closet, and cowers and whimpers and basically waits for Michael to find her. You know, I can appreciate that she doesn't want to leave the kids to to Michael, so I can get why she doesn't go out on the balcony. She's doing her job. Not very well, but she's doing it. And she hides in the closet. Now, I love this sequence, but again, it always bothers me that this is her plan, just to hide in the closet. And she really thinks this is going to work. But, well, this is a mistake. She does redeem herself here by, when as Michael starts to break down the closet door... She takes a wire coat hanger and fashions it into like just like a spike or a little pokey thing. I don't know what you... And jams it right into Michael's eyeball, which causes him to drop the knife. She grabs it, seizes the opportunity, and stabs him right in the chest. It's a great move by Laurie Strode. I think, again, rose-colored glasses just a little bit in talking about her redeeming herself. I do like the resourcefulness. You got nothing else, you're going to grab the coat hanger and blind him. Absolutely, if you can do this. But I still think that if you're not the protagonist of the film, you're dead here. Probably, but I still think it's a great movie. You know, she made a mistake, but she recovers from it very nicely and stays in the game. But let's talk about what happens after. Yes, now she makes more mistakes. She does One, not double tap. She she does not double tap. And she again... Leaves the knife behind. Leaves the knife behind right where she left it before you can't make these mistakes twice i yeah this is where maybe i'm not understanding why lori is this revered character in horror lore 
she makes so many mistakes. I don't care if she keeps fighting. I don't care. As as a casual audience member, this is just frustrating to watch. You already know that something is weird. Survive stabbed to the neck, and you're just going to sink there in the doorway. Again, after wasting a lot of precious time telling the kids to go do something rather than just going with the kids to do the thing. No. Get out of the house. Stand in the street. Wait for the cops. Send the kids down the street. Get out. Don't. Don't. Do what you did. Well, you know, I, I would say at this point, double tap, hold on to the sure. knife, keep an eye on the body, send the kids out for help, and you stay there and you make sure Michael does not get back up. Sure. I keep, think that's fine. Yeah, constant she, vigilance. Keep she your, turns keep, her back on him. Keep your eye on the corpse while standing on the balcony. And if the corpse gets back up, leave. So, Michael's out, seemingly down for the count. Lori tells uh, Lindsay Wallace and Tommy Doyle to go get help. They leave the house running and screaming just as Dr. Loomis is coming by. And he's like, oh... I think there's something going on in there. He goes in the house. Michael attacks Lori, starts throttling her from behind. Now, she does rip his mask off, which which stops his attack. So that's something. I, I won't give her too much credit for it, but it's, it's something. She went for a, a weakness that she didn't know he had. But she learned something in the process. Take the mask off. And Dr. Loomis shows up and shoots Michael six times. He falls out of the balcony or onto the balcony, trips over it, falls onto the ground, out of the house. Go, Dr. Loomis. Yes. Excellent by Dr. Loomis. Not stingy with his bullets. He used them all. All of them. He even kept squeezing the trigger to make sure he didn't have any more. Yep. And he hit with all of them. Good Gr- shot. Granted, I-, I don't know what he was shooting at when he was testing to see if there were any more bullets. But still, I appreciate the effort. You know what? Yeah, you are empty. And thank you for doing that. Was it effective? Well... Yes, for the time being, it was effective. If it wasn't Michael Myers, it would have worked. Exactly. This should have worked. Dr. Loomis tells Lori was indeed the boogeyman when she asks. And then he goes to look over the balcony and make sure Michael's still there. Oh, no, he's not there anymore. Oh, and then we cut to various locations that we've seen before in the movie, and we hear Michael breathing. Credits. And that is the end of Halloween. So, we have a final body count of... Five people got killed in Halloween. And how many of them had a chance? Three had uh, a chance to survive for sure. Mm-hmm. There's an argument to be made for Judith, a very, very mini one. Uh, the mechanic had no chance. Judith had virtually no chance. And I'm going to say Annie had many chances yep. to survive this movie. Linda and Bob had a few. Linda and Bob broke some rules. But Annie was a- pretty egregious. Annie was egregious. So we'll just go over the new rules very quickly. Rule number one on how to survive a horror movie is you have to know you're in one. Rule number two, constant vigilance. Rule number three... Do your damn job. Rule number four, don't be a menace. Rule number five, lock and load. Rule number six, double tap. And rule number seven, don't leave the weapon behind. So we have seven rules to add to the initial How to Survive a Horror Movie master list. Derek, do you like those rules? I like those rules. I think any notes that I had taken about what characters could have done better, those are pretty all-encompassing, pretty general and can apply to the many different genres that I'm sure you're going to run into as you explore these universes a little bit more. Yeah, I don't want to get too specific. You know, there's obviously, you know, subsections of each rule, keeping your head on a swivel, watching for cars following you under constant vigilance, stuff like that. Um, But yeah, I want to keep the rules pretty general. So we don't have a million rules. We only have seven. You can't make the rule, uh, make sure Michael Myers is dead. Yes. That that doesn't work. A little too specific. So those are the new rules. And now the next thing we're going to do is we're going to give out a couple of awards to uh, the characters in tonight's movie, Halloween. The first 
award is called the Randy Meeks Merit Badge, which is based off the character of Randy Meeks from Scream, who has this fabulous clip. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. Uh, he's kind of part of the inspiration for this podcast. Uh, he's one of my all-time favorite movie characters. And so this award goes to whoever followed the rules the best. And I think there's really only two people we can consider. First being Dr. Loomis. He made a few mistakes, but he, he definitely came in when it mattered most in, in shooting Michael. Now, you know, he used all of his bullets wisely. Just some smart calls uh, made by Dr. Loomis. But I do think, well, he did a good job. I think, Derek, I think you're going to have to introduce the real winner of the night. The neighbors. The neighbors made zero mistakes. Dr. Loomis found himself in a situation where he was going to be a big player in this movie, which gives him more opportunities to make mistakes, more opportunities to die, more opportunities to put himself in danger. But if we're going to call the first, truest, and best rule the paramount, the most important, the neighbors saw immediately they are in a horror movie. They are not going to step one foot further into that horror movie. They backed right out of that situation. Go Neighbors. Go Neighbors. They are the winners of the Randy Meeks Merit Badge and definitely did the best job of following the rules in this movie. The other award is called the Knight of the Living Pleb Award, which is based off the character of Barbara. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. From Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, she's just the worst. She's one of my least favorite movie characters of all time. She's utterly useless. She's one of the main characters, and she just makes horrible decision after horrible decision, and it's pretty much catatonic for most of the movie, and she's worthless. So, for Night of the Living Pleb, I think there's really only one option, and it's got to be Annie. It's got to be Annie. I do want to point out one dishonorable mention that I might get vilified by the horror community for. Lori, you made horrible decision after horrible decision you may have fought your way back out, but without that plot armor, you are dead. That being said, I liked Lori. I wanted her to live. I did not like Annie. <laughs> I did not want Annie to live, and for that reason, I believe you are the pleb yeah. of the night. Yep, Annie is the living pleb. Or the not-so-living pleb, I guess. The, the not-so-living pleb. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Annie just made tons and tons of mistakes. Didn't realize she was in a horror movie. No constant vigilance. Just, and was terrible at her job at babysitting. Ignored the animals. You know, good on her for trying to get uh, people's attention by honking the horn, but that's the only real positive I can give her. So as we're wrapping things up here, Derek, did you enjoy your time on this podcast? I enjoyed the time on the podcast. Absolutely. It, it's interesting to take something like this and do something purposefully with it. It definitely keeps my mind a little bit more open rather than just hey, I'm spending my free time watching a movie of people making horrible decisions. Yes, at least this way we get to, to criticize them in a public forum. Yes. <laughs> uh, would you like to come back on the podcast? I'd be interested in coming back. Okay, because here's the part of the show where you get to reserve your spot uh, and reserve a movie for you to come back. What? Yep. <laughs> and since you're my first ever guest, I'm going to give you two, two spots to reserve. So what you're going to do is you're going to pick two movies that you would like to critique and uh find some rules for any two horror movies you want the uh, caveat being they can't already be reserved now since you're the first guest there are no reserved movies so you have free reign so Derek, you can pick two horror movies that your spot is reserved for those movies when i get to those episodes i gotta say when i found out that you were starting this podcast i've seen horror movies that i can maybe count on one hand one of them is children of the corn 
five, starring Eva Mendez and a bunch of other people whom I don't remember. <laughs> Children of the Corn Five, yes. Fields of Terror, the classic film. Of course you would know what the subtitle was on that. I own that movie. I've seen it, and I remember it being so hilariously bad and entertaining that I need to go through it again. And there's one part in that movie in particular that I can't wait to eviscerate. No spoilers. No spoilers yet. Okay, I like the pick. Children of the Corn 5, Fields of Terror has been reserved for Derek. You have one more pick. I think for my second pick, because I am a completionist, Halloween 2. Halloween 2? I wasn't sure if you were going to go for it. Because you, you didn't like ha- Halloween as much as I would hope. Uh, it picks up exactly where the first movie left off. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you picked Halloween 2. That'll be, that'll be interesting. Hopefully those movies will only get better from here. Unlikely. And so now, finally, uh, how we decide what the next movie is going to be. I haven't decided what this is officially called yet, but for now, it's the Wheel of Spooks. <laughs> not, not spokes, not spokes, spooks. Um, so I have a wheel here, kind of like a Wheel of Fortune type wheel. It's got eight spots on it. Ryan, just call it the Wheel of Spooks and start this section over. That is hilariously stupid. Please call it the Wheel of Spooks. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm going to leave all of this in because it's really funny. The Wheel of Spooks. Not the Wheel of Spokes. So it has eight spots on here. It's kind of like a Wheel of Fortune wheel. It spins. But I'll go ahead and read the eight movies on here. And so the second episode will be one of these eight movies. And Derek, you are going to spin this wheel and whatever it lands on, that'll be the movie. So, we have Halloween 2, so if it lands on that, you'll be my next guest. Then we have Child's Play, which is the, the Chucky doll movies. I Know What You Did Last Summer, Saw, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Scream, and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It will be one of those eight films. Uh, Children of the Corn is not on the wheel yet. I will put those on here someday. There's only eight spots on the wheel. Derek, go ahead and spin the wheel. <laughs> And it lands on A Nightmare on Elm Street. We got some Freddy Krueger up in here. And I think I have a guest, my buddy Josh, I think will be on the episode. And he does not love this movie, so I'm sure he will be thrilled. I I don't have anything else to add. (laughs) So that's great. So the next episode will be for A Nightmare on Elm Street, which is one of my favorites. Okay, well, that's it. Uh, Derek, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We'll definitely have you on again sometime as soon as we spin up Halloween 2 or Children of the Corn 5 when we get there. Uh, in the meantime, this has been the How to Survive a Horror Movie Podcast. I'm Ryan Stacy. Stay safe out there. <laughs>